quite appropriate that on a day when we remember the worst of what it means to be human, when we recall the horror of what we seem capable of doing one to another, that we look at the doctrine that talks about God coming to this world. If you were God, would you have come? If you were God, when in history would you have come? And at what uh, time and location would you have chosen? Incarnation means enfleshment. Quite literally, the word Jesus uh, became flesh. From the word carne, as in chili con carne. Chili with meat, with flesh. Uh, It's enough to make everyone become vegetarians. But nevertheless, that's where the word comes from. And uh, as David read from John chapter 1, that we think about at Christmas, we take it out of that Christmas context, it's bigger and greater than that. In the beginning was the Word, a way of talking about Jesus. So we're picking up some of the doctrines that we've already been thinking about, that Jesus was there in the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and the Word, uh, sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You say, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense, but then if we were to understand what it means to be God, then God would be less than God. So I'm content with the mystery of it. But the mystery continues. Because after establishing that this Word, this God who is in the heavens, who was always there in the beginning, only a few verses later we have this quite staggering phrase that rolls off our tongue, that the Word, this God who always was, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory And not surprising, they might write, if God was to become on earth, you would expect at least one or two people to say that we've seen something rather spectacular, and they had. But this is a camping metaphor. Who likes camping? Three of you. Great. And the rest of us have to do it for other constraints. Uh, Now, now there are all kinds of challenges about camping. Uh, One of the greatest challenges about camping is who ends up pitching their tent next to you. It can make or break a holiday. Maybe we have made or broken a holiday or two for others as they see us come. Quite literally, this verse means Jesus came and set up the camp of his life on our pitch. He didn't even have the decency of sticking to his own space. Right in the middle of our pitch, Jesus came along and plonked the tent of his life. It's right up, it's close, and it's personal. And it's a more remarkable step than what we thought about last week, that after God created the world, he didn't spin it into space and leave it to be, but the Bible clearly teaches us that God stayed with this world, weaving out his purpose despite, and sometimes remarkably, in in, in including the monstrous evil that is within, included within it. God weaving his purpose till that day when we dance. More remarkable still is that God didn't simply carry on working with this world in all its mess and uh, failing. God actually came and became 
part of it. He became one of us. The creator became a creature. The theatre owner appeared on his own stage. He's entered our dimensions, our physicality, our chronology, our set of interrelationships, our constraints. It's the event of all history. If the God who made us should become one of us. It's the event of all time. If the God who created even the stars that go into outer space beyond our comprehension should choose in a moment of time to reduce himself to the constraints of being flesh and blood. And so we read in the fullness of time, when the time had fully come, or at the very centre of time, this is the moment when time really, truly began. This is the one moment in all of history that ultimately, theologically, fundamentally, philosophically, whichever other way you want, other than chronologically, came first. When time had fully come, God himself broke into this world with all its horror, with all its disgrace, and he lived with our constraints. Any study of the doctrine of uh, the incarnation would tend to focus on issues about what it means for God to be, uh, for Jesus to be fully God and fully human and, uh, uh, and all of those kind of discussions. Well, you may remember that last year we did a, a series on just Jesus and, and if that kind of takes your fancy again, go back to the first three sermons uh, in that series. you just find them in, in the left-hand menu on the website there uh, under podcasting. And, uh, and there we talked about what did it mean for God who was always and never stopped being God to be a human being. Incredible thing. I'm not going to go over that material this morning, but think differently. Think about what it says to us, what it speaks to us about God and His ways and who He is. You see, firstly, the incarnation speaks to us of His care. You see, if you're going to care in any situation, you have to understand. Caring needs understanding. The Bible teaches us that true care comes out of a position of true understanding. When you've gone through the mire, when you face troubles yourself and you found God in it, then you're useful to help other people in those same troubles. Because caring needs understanding. And God never asks us anything. Have you noticed that in the Bible? God never asks us anything he hasn't already done himself. If he's saying to us, some of the things you go through will help you care for others, God himself went through it all so that no one could ever say of him, he does not understand. If Jesus wasn't fully human, then he doesn't understand me. If Jesus wasn't a man, he has no idea what I face, what living like a man or a woman is like. If he never grew up, he's never understood what being a child is like. He doesn't know what I feel, what I fear. If Jesus is not fully human, then there's always the gulf of humanity between us. Imagine going to the Queen and having afternoon tea. What would you say? Would you say past the scones? Or would you say past the scones? What would you say? Scones? Scones, is it? Really? That's part of the scones, really. 
I wonder whether the Queen might have scones, you know. After you've asked her to pass the scones, what would you say? Sorry? Please. Thank you. Fantastic. That's, that's very good. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. That's very good. Then what would you say? Thank you. Okay. It's going to be a long morning, isn't it? <laughs> and then, as you sit there, and the embarrassing silence descends, what next? Do you talk to her about the credit crunch? Do you talk to her about your fear of your property being devalued? Do you talk to her about whether she's completed her tax return? Do you ask her whether she has trouble getting all the shopping in when the Tesco van arrives? What do you talk to her about? Do you talk to her about the long wait you had for your hip? Do you talk to her about trying to catch a bus from Rushmere Road into town? It's more complicated than it looks. Do you talk about queuing for your pension or your frustration at call centres? Or the 9 to 5 or the 8 to 8 routine? And suddenly you realise there's a gulf between you. There's so much about life in her kingdom that she does not understand. And how could she? She understands a lot about loss, though, and breakup of relationships. Maybe we talk about that as we found things in common. But for ordinary stuff, would you run to her for support, for empathy, for connection, for understanding as you struggle through the daily grind? No, because you wouldn't expect to find it there. She is unaware. She hasn't felt what we face or faced what we feel. How much worse with God? Totally cocooned in the wonder of heaven where all is unblemished. What does he know about the struggle of our days on earth? Why would I run to him? Why would I connect with him? Why would I hope at all that he could ever understand? Unless, of course, he's been here. Unless he's known it from our end, seen it from our side. Unless, of course, in some incredible way, the immortal has become mortal. He's become one of us. So he knows what it's like to be you and me. The incarnation speaks of his care, of his understanding. And commenting on his life, the writer to the Hebrews said this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, a great one who's gone through the heavens, he's gone from heaven to earth, back to heaven again, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We can hold firmly to the faith we profess. That last sentence is mine. Why? For we do not have a high priest who does not understand. We can hold to our faith because we know there is one who understands, who knows, who's been there. And if he got through, will get us through also. We've a God we can run to, relate to, connect with, to who will understand us because where has he been? Right here, right there with us. Whatever it is I face, he's faced it. Whatever feelings he's gone through, uh, I've gone through, he's gone through. 
whatever the pressure, accept without stain or blemish. The message, a translation of this verse says, we do not have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. How many of you got bosses like that? <laughs> yeah, a few of you. Now, out, we have a God who is not out of touch with our reality. Tomorrow morning, our God is not out of touch with our reality. J.B. Phillips uh, put it like this, a kind of message translation from the Bible some 30, 40 years ago. Uh, We have no superhuman high priest. He was a human being like you and me. He was no superman. And because he understands, he can truly care. But to care, you need to do more, do you not, than understand. To care, you need to get involved. Caring needs closeness. You cannot care from a distance. We would not dream of letting our younger children leave and go away from home. How would we care for them? When our parents get older and frailer, many of us arrange the circumstances of our lives so that we bring them or we travel so they are nearer to us so that we can care for them. Jesus put up his tent right on our pitch so that he might care for us. He's come alongside us into the world that we habit. He showed us his love. He sent his one and only son We're into, right into the world that we might live through him. Alan Hargreaves uh, uh, book, he writes of, of a time when he moved with his family back to South America for a three-year stay. It started off really badly, he arrived with his young family at Lima Airport and nobody was there to meet him. Eventually he got to the place where he was uh, due to stay, a friend's house, uh, but his daughter, young daughter in particular, couldn't bear being there. She wanted to go home. One morning, I got up to her room and discovered to my dismay that she had packed her bag. What are you doing? I asked. I'm leaving this horrible place and going home, she exclaims. Her voice is absolutely firm, her chin set like stone. I go downstairs and talk to my wife. We are concerned that she may just go out of the front gate and wander off. As we talk, she comes downstairs with a rucksack on her back and heads for the door. We try and tell her that it just isn't possible to go back to England, that we are thousands of miles away, but there's no reasoning with her. Right, she says, I'm going. And she walks out the door. I look at my wife and decide there's only one thing to do. Okay, I say, I'll come with you. And off we set. We open the front gate. Which way, I ask? Left, she replies without hesitation. We walk together to the end of the block. Which way now? Straight on. We cross the road and walk another block. Left again, she proclaims, without a trace of uncertainty. Another block, right, another, straight on. We walk briskly on, left, left, straight on, right, straight on. But after a while, the pace starts to slow and her hand grips mine a little more tightly. After quite some time, we arrive at yet another corner. Which way? I ask gently. Her lips begin to quiver and she looks down at the floor. I don't know, she says, and bursts into tears. I kneel down beside her on the path and hug her very tight. We're both weeping profusely. We've lost our way. We've lost our way. 
when we walked out the front door, when Adam and Eve left, God didn't stop us. When Israel went their own way and walked out that front gate, slamming it behind them, God didn't stop them. He didn't stop the prodigal son. He didn't stop the Roman executioners. And neither does he stop us when we stomp out the door and make our own way. But neither does he abandon us. Incredibly, remarkably, he comes with us. He joins us in our lostness. For a while we don't need him. We know which way, left, right, straight on. We're in control, we're in charge. But every once in a while you will have slowed down the pace. And you will have wanted to grip a hand more tightly as you come to the realisation that at the next corner you do not know which way. Maybe you're at that point in your life right now, this morning. If you're here and that's you, we're thrilled that you're here today. We want you to know the incredible thing. And this is a summary of everything that we're saying today. This big idea is this. When we discover that we've lost our way, we discover that God is alongside us in the lostness. Not only has he cared enough to understand, but he's cared enough to stay close. And he's there. And even today, you can squeeze his hand. It's an amazing story in the Gospels that happened in the life of Jesus that illustrates this for me Uh, more profoundly perhaps than any of the others. It had been a long, hard day. Jesus had gone up onto the mountainside to pray and uh, his disciples had got in the boat to cross over to the other side of the lake. But there was trouble. The boat was already a considerable distance from the land and it was being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Mark tells us in his gospel that they were straining with their oars. They were giving it all they had. They were very afraid. Why were they afraid? Because storms on that lake were very real and very unpredictable. Why were they afraid? Because their friends and colleagues had died on that lake in those kind of storms. That was the scenario. And there they are, all alone in the darkness. And maybe that is how you feel today. Here I am, I'm straining as hard as I can, trying to keep it all under control, but actually I don't feel like I'm winning, and I'm all alone in the darkness, and where on earth is God in the midst of this? Where is Jesus? Where is he right now when I need him most? The passage answers the question. Where is Jesus as they strained the oars? He's coming, walking towards the eye of the storm. This Jesus comes because he knows how you feel. Because he knows what it's like. He can empathise and now he's coming to be close. And maybe some of us need to hear just in the midst of the storm that it's in the midst of the storm that Jesus comes. It's there as we said last week that we find him. And he says to those disciples, and maybe you need to hear him say that today, on the 8th of November 2009, take courage, I'm here, it's I, do not be afraid. He's there in the storm, because he knows what it's like. Take courage, it's I. And there's great hope. There's great hope when Jesus comes, because if you care, you need to provide And he's provided in a most incredible way. When they crossed over, he got them out of the storm to the other side. Caring needs provision. If you don't provide for somebody, you're not caring for them. 
caring needs provision. He came to provide. And as he rescued them from the storm, it was a reminder that this Jesus had come from the beauty of heaven, come from the mountain, into the storm of this world, in order to provide for us, to get us across, to get us to the other side. And that's what Luke, a doctor, trying to understand what Jesus' life was all about, he said this of Jesus, the Son of Man, this is why he came, he came to seek and to save what was lost, to provide for those who can't find their way out anymore. So the incarnation speaks of his care. But more than that, it speaks of his courage. If our celebration of God coming at Christmas is littered with images that are warm and cosy and safe and secure, the first Christmas was anything like that, really. God's coming was harsh and real. God's coming was risky and raw, naked and bare and vulnerable and exposing and rough and dangerous and desperate. But the heart of God's coming lies not comfort or safety, not security or old familiar things, not even the warmth of family and friends. At the heart of Christmas lies immense courage. If you were God, would you have been that courageous? What outrageous, absurd courage to come to earth as a defenseless baby. What greater courage has this world ever seen than God himself facing our weeks, days, hours and minutes? What greater courage has ever been shown that the God who fills all of the universe should shrink down and 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 down into an animal's feeding trough. Confined, closeted, constrained by the womb of a teenage girl and then wrapped in strips of swaddling bands so tightly you could hardly move. That was the general idea. What courage God took to become one of us. What courage to choose Bethlehem. Would you have chosen Bethlehem? Bethlehem, this outback, bloody, violent, restless, discontented outback. Bethlehem, where so often in recent times there has been such violence as it was just then. Bethlehem, if you've chosen a cattle shed or a castle, to peasants rather than princes, God without rights, power and influence, what courage. <laughs> and what if we didn't like him? What if he came from heaven and we didn't like him? What if we loathed him or ignored him or left him out in the cold? What if he came from heaven and earth's kings made no room for him? What if he came from heaven and he suffered the worst things that human beings suffer? What if he came and he was born with an ethnicity that would always, in that time and place, leave him hated? What if he grew up with a country accent which would have meant he was mocked every time he spoke in the city? What if people liked him, disliked him so much that they taunted him or even beat him? Imagine if God came and someone tried to kill him. 
matter. What courage. What courage. What courage. How did God the Father feel, helpless as any father, watching his son emerge, smeared with blood to face this harsh, cold world? Jesus surely cried whatever the way in a manger thing says. All babies cry. But he was always to cry as he carried the pain of this world in his heart, as the cross towered over the whole of his life. G.K. Chesterton, the writer, profoundly says, alone of all the creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. The need for great courage began with Jesus' first night on earth and didn't end until his last. And then lastly, finally, the incarnation speaks of his call, his call on our lives. See, God's courage disturbs me, does it not you? God's courage disturbs my timidity, my silence, my meekness, my self-protection, my refusal to take risks, my apprehension. Can I live a life of self-protection, guarding my vulnerability, protecting my feelings? No. If God himself should live with such courageous vulnerability, then my comfort zone is irretrievably disturbed as I follow him. And the incarnation calls me to leave my comfort, to exhibit that courage, to reach into a broken, hurting world with the care that comes from heaven. We've created, though, a Western church that is safe, secure, distant and protected from the world we're called to care for. And it's the absolute antithesis, the exact opposite of what the incarnation teaches us. Jesus knew what church should be like. He said this, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. We've chosen a very different model and we wonder why it doesn't work. Jesus said, go into the world. And we've said loudly enough, no, that's a bit too risky. We haven't got that much courage, so we've got another idea. We'll stay here, safe and secure, but every now and again we'll invite them to come. The call of the incarnation is to live outrageously, courageously, to get close enough to truly care. If God took the courage to leave the sanctuary of heaven and move across the universe into our broken, damaged, destroying kind of world, why can't I get across the street to my neighbour? And why can't we get across the office floor to our neighbour? And why can't we get across the playground to our parent, neighbour? Why? Because all too often, I guess we just go, that's too risky. I'm not sure I'm up for that. They might not welcome me. I might not be accepted. They might misunderstand me or or think I'm strange. I decide the risk is too great. I decide better to play it safe. The rejection too real. And so I keep within my comfort zone. 
I keep safe with my own circle of friends who know me and share my values and understand my vision. I go for minimum risk. I'm risk adverse. But what if just maybe? What if just maybe my aversion, aversion to risk, my bias towards my own safety is less than honourable to a God who risked everything for me? Somehow I believe stronger than ever that God's asking us to crank up the courage. To crank up the courage. If he crossed the universe, what will I cross? What places will I go? What courage will I display in honour of the one who came, still comes, and will come again? Everywhere, people are desperate to find someone who cares. Six weeks ago, I arrived at church in the week and a man was walking up the path. He asked if he could speak to the minister. I confessed. He asked if he could book his place at the Christmas lunch for Open Door. Every year for the last 20, there or thereabouts, we've had a meal for anyone who wants to come. I assured him there would be a place for him. And content just to know there was a place, he shuffled off up the street. I stood for a moment and watched him go. That man probably spends most days alone. Three months ahead, that man was checking that he would not have to spend that day alone as well. This is our world. That's what it's like. Crying out for people who will care. Will we hear the call? Will we hear the call? Or is it just a nice, debatable, theological point that God came and God comes and God still comes and one day he'll come again? No. So much more. If he came, we must go. He got close enough to care, he understood enough to care, he provided and cared. And we had the provision of heaven to care for the world that he gives us. As of now, we have no one to run open door this year. Usually it's all in the bag. This year it isn't. For 20 years we provided a meal. This year we might not provide a meal unless one of us, a church member here, needs to be. Unless one of us says, I'll do that this year. I can do that. I can go and do that. And in a moment after we've sung, we'll think a little bit about Open Door and maybe... Uh, God's laying that on your heart. But I want to ask all of us, have we heard the call to get involved? To get involved. How easy for the God of heaven to have left, walked away, turned his back. Was there anything about this world that encouraged him to stay? 
and yet he came, knowing all that it would mean. He counted the cost and was prepared to pay the cost. And he says of his church, what will you do as you think about me in response to my coming? Let's pray.